So I want to congratulate you on the first day of full practice. Can you hear me okay back there? Okay, good. Thank you. Yeah, so yeah, really, this first full day of retreat practice, so deep bows to you. It is so rare that we get the chance to um, to do this, to sit with ourselves, <clears throat> to sit with um, sometimes what we sometimes describe as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. friend recently <laughs> told me this kind of a humorous statement, but I think it has some truth to it. She said that there's two types of people, those who have issues and those who are dead. <laughs> I guess we got issues. <laughs> so well, maybe when you're dead, there's no issues. I don't know. This being human is, is indeed a guest house. A house of joy, sorrow, complexity. Having to make a living, being in relationship. Being with ourselves, being with others, being with this world and these worldly conditions that are very challenging these days. Not only um, politically, but also environmentally. And so we're here in retreat, and it's a time to pause, to stop, to listen to the inner murmurings of, of our own hearts. And at first, of course, for many of us, just because it may look like we're physically stopping to some degree by just uh, doing so much less than our day-to-day -day life and just sitting and walking, it's not so easy to uh, have our minds be settled. <clears throat> I often read this on the first full day of a retreat. It's a beautiful words from Bhante Gunaratana. <clears throat> he wrote actually a very, he's written a number of very wonderful books, and one of them is called Mindfulness in Plain English, and this comes from that book. And he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy, that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. And he goes on to say, it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just never noticed. So perhaps that's even an important insight is to realize just how unmindful and restless our mind is, because if we were not mindful, we wouldn't even know that we were not mindful. <laughs> that's why I love the saying, no matter how much time you wander off, the moment that you realize that you are not present, you are present. It's like a beautiful concise equation. The moment you realize you're not there, you are here. And we begin again and again and again. 
the attitude of how we work with our practice <clears throat> is very important. <clears throat> it's a beautiful teaching from Pema Chodron, a Tibetan teacher. And she speaks about meditation training. She's comparing it to dog training. And um, when we get a puppy, you know, it's nice to have them learn some commands like stay, come, sit, so forth. And you can train a puppy in a very rigid and harsh and punitive way, and gradually that puppy will most of the time learn these commands. My dog, she's 10 years old, she has a little hard of hearing. <laughs> well, no, actually, I look at it more like she, she's a, she loves her independence and her own sovereignty. But sometimes when you train a dog in a very punitive, very fear-based way, um, these dogs' temperament become a little bit more neurotic and confused. They become skittish, nervous. And of course, we can also have a puppy and treat it very kindly, very patiently, um, a gentler, more kinder way of working with the commands that to be learned. And gradually in time, the puppy may learn some of them, most of them. But often because of the effect of this type of training, when a training is infused with kindness, often the temperament of those puppies in, grow into dogs that are more confident and flexible. So we're speaking about dog training here, but I, I think it's really akin to ourselves as well. And many of us, perhaps due to our past history, treat ourselves pretty roughly. One Australian teacher calls it the subtle aggression of self-improvement that continues to wrap our lives in a knot. This is bringing a kind of a, an inner violence to our meditation. And of course, when we look at attitude, it doesn't involve wise effort. Knowing when to apply his effort, when it is wise to apply his effort, knowing when to, um, to take pause. Um, wise pause. So just because bringing kindness to our practice doesn't mean that we give up our effort, but there's a wisdom to our effort in our practice. And so I really love this teaching of the training of meditation practice. And today you probably witnessed firsthand the thousands and thousands of times your mind wandered off from the breath. Probably, you, you know, you need like a little clicker to really keep count, but I'm sure it's in the thousands. Or at least my mind is in the thousands. I don't know about anyone else. I mean, actually, you all look really good. You're all sitting there like this, and I'm just like, oh boy, this is really difficult. <laughs> Anybody else have that feeling? You look around, boy, it looks like they really got it together. I'm the only one that's, this mind is wandering. Yeah. But this attitude... <clears throat> is so important. A kind and wise attitude for the 10,000th time that the mind wanders back, for the 10,000th time returning in a kind way. Perhaps rather than blaming ourselves 
because we weren't being mindful. How about congratulating ourselves that we are again? This type of training may further the growth of our own confidence, the growth of our own flexibility. We use the breath, other meditation objects as well. These serve to help steady the mind, and of course, they can begin to reveal one of the marks of existence, the transient nature of things, and actually another mark of the ownerless nature of things. But often, we're using these objects so we can begin to settle to see our minds more clearly. And when I say more clearly, more clearly perhaps at times where we're holding on to something or pushing away. So in some ways we can say, yes, we use the breath as an object to help settle the mind. But it's not only about the breath. It's about the workings of our mind and heart. The breath is, of course, a wonderful object to steady the mind. Also, it teaches us about change with the in and out breath, like the waves of the seas, as well as perhaps if we expand the awareness in the body into physical sensations or sounds. Actually, all of the foundations, the feeling tones, the mind states begin to reveal this effervescent, this ephemeral, this shifting nature of change. Found within these foundations of mindfulness is the um, refrain of it arises and passes. And so I think it's just very wonderful that we are, though, beginning to stop, to begin to pay attention on purpose in the present moment, training ourselves to be present with the breath, training ourselves to begin to settle there's a value in stopping. And I love the notion that we can be a human being. At times we've become these human doings. And the stopping is very valuable and we sometimes don't realize the importance of the darkness of the night. This serves in plant growth just as much as the water, the earth, the plant. A time of dormancy, a time of movement, a time of sunlight, a time of darkness, a time for all things under heaven. But the value of stopping is incredibly important at times. And I've recited this quote a lot. It's really one of my many favorites from Pablo Neruda, Chilean poet. It's called Keeping Quiet, and this poem is about what would it be like if the whole world could just stop for 12 seconds. What would happen? And there's a couple of lines within this poem that, to me, really describe why it is so important to stop and to meditate. And he said, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. 
So if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge, huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. So we've entered collectively, individually and collectively, into this huge silence perhaps to begin to understand ourselves, to begin to grow wiser. Yeah, there's a funny quote from Hafiz, I won't read it to you, but speaks about being inside his closet for three days with no talking and says, better get a chamber pot as well. But this quality of learning to sit with ourselves, he's speaking about. And it's a, it's a beautiful quality to sit with ourselves. And he says at the end of this reading, uh, that there's a ruby buried inside here. And so perhaps as we begin to practice, <clears throat> we begin to discover this ruby. I was very touched with um, Mary Grace last night sharing about the Buddha and going down the road and, you know, and some people asked, who are you? And, he didn't say, I'm the Buddha. He said, I'm awake. And I don't know, there's something about the quality of awakefulness that is so gorgeous. It's like, I want to be here. I want to know and understand. Awake has the quality of intimacy. And I love when you slow down that word and speak it slowly. It also says, into me I see. The quality of awakening, awakefulness, to be here in this life, in this moment where life is being lived. This is where the rubber meets the road. There's a Spanish poet named uh, Antonio Machado, and he has this beautiful three-line verse, and he says, some say it's good to dream, and others say it's better to live best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Some say it is good to dream, and others say it's better to live, but best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Mm. Very beautiful. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Another way often that I like to just describe these triple gems is, is the Buddha who, it's the teaching of awakening. It's the awakening, the teaching of awakening, and those that are supporting each other to awaken. Awaken into what? Awaken into more peace, more wisdom, more compassion, 
understanding so clearly all the places where we get caught, where we get lost, where we're holding on or pushing away. This awakening quality sees through the stories that have held us hostage. So here we are in this human condition, so precious, so fragile. And here in this retreat, we get to sit with it. As Mary Oliver says, within this one wild and precious life, and she says, tell me, doesn't everything die at last and too soon? And what is it you're going to do with this one wild and precious life? You know, I'm, um, this is on, right? Yeah. Okay. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Um, so I got my, got my Medicare card now, 65. How'd that happen? I remember asking my teacher, Lindit when he turned 80, I asked him, how fast has 80 years gone by? And he looks at me and smiles and goes like this. 80 years. My wife, Jen, told me a story once, and I don't know if I'll get it fully accurate, but in one of her MBSR classes, there was, was the first night, and people going around the circle, and we brought them here, and one gentleman said, um, last thing I remember was my 21st birthday, now I'm 45 or something like that. Like, where did it go? Where did it go? From Jane Kenyon, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day, just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. <clears throat> I always kind of hope and otherwise will be a little bit later. But there's been a few times in my life where otherwise was showing its face very closely. 
But I began to reflect upon otherwise when I was four years old, when I had my first realization that I was going to die, that everybody was going to die, and it could happen at any moment. I'm not sure how I came to that realization, but I did, and my life really changed. I began to realize just uh, things could happen, and if in my own life, by the time I was nine, I lost a brother that I shared a room with, a best friend, a grandfather, so that was deeply reinforced of the impermanent nature of things. And, um, yeah, it's powerful to really comprehend deeply the inevitable. How many of us here remember the first time you realized you were going to die? You can raise your hands, just curious. And actually, if you're just finding out today for the... <laughs> For the first time, I'm sorry to break the news to you. <laughs> yeah, for some of us, we remember it instantly. Like, it was just so unmistakable. It was like a completely different channel was turned at that moment. What I love about the teachings of the Dharma, and particularly uh, the beginning of the, the Buddha's, or actually his name was Siddhartha Gautama, his, his sojourn into the path of awakening. And it's such a human story. I think because of my own upbringing with, with death, um, the, the story of Siddhartha's journey resonates so deeply to me, and it's just so human, it's relatable. And perhaps some of you have heard the story before, but it's it's so worthy of, you know, telling and hearing because of its humanity, the human condition. <clears throat> So I'll just share a bit of it. And so Siddhartha Gautama was born in ancient India nearly 2,600 years ago. And he, he was born into a family of, of nobility and destined to become a king. And it was very customary in ancient India when a, a new royal prince or princess was born to have the, the wise group of wise ones come and look at the size of the ears and the hand and the nose and the legs and the arms and all types of things. And so there was five of them there and four of them announced to the king, Siddhartha will become a great king and probably even greater than you. But the fourth one, whose name was Kodanya, who was the youngest, said, no, he's not going to become a king. He's going to become a Buddha. And the king, upon hearing this, was scared. Like, no way did he want his son to become a Buddha. He wanted his son to become a king like himself. And somehow, even though this was the, the youngest uh, seer, and, and, you know, what does this person even know? Somehow, it, it, something touched the king deeply, and, and it informed him in Siddhartha's 
upbringing to give him a very sheltered life filled with all of the pleasures of the senses and education and sports and everything you could think of to have his son just be so engrossed and wrapped in the world with his pleasures and everything. And so the story goes that this went on for 29 years and Siddhartha's just living in this type of pleasurable world. And for some unknown reason, um, he had uh, a desire one day to go outside of the palace into the kingdom with a his Uber driver, Chana, his charioteersman. <laughs> and uh, texted, he texted Chana, come on, let's go out for a little thing here. <clears throat> and so they, they went out on, on this outing into the kingdom. And on this outing, he came across an old person, probably somebody almost looking a little bit like me at this point. And... You know, maybe Sid Arthur had seen many old people before, but somehow, perhaps just living this dream world, it never kind of impressed upon him anything. But for whatever reason, in that moment, his eyes got clear, and he really saw deeply and saw that this was an old person and began to ask Chana about this. And Chana said, this is an old person. You live long enough, gradually you, you get wrinkles and your hair may fall out and you get kind of gray, a little baggy. And um, everyone, if you live long enough, you, there's no escape from aging. And somehow in this particular outing, this it was like an arrow that pierced him, Sir Arthur. Like somehow, like this dream world kind of disappeared for a moment and like, wow, there is aging. So he came back to the palace and no doubt was, um, you know, this was a, a powerful experience for him. But, you know, after a while and back to the land of pleasure and everything else in the world and he went on. Till there was another desire within him at some point later to go back out into the kingdom again and went with Chana. And there they came across a person that was very, very ill. And for whatever reason, perhaps the, you know, being lost in that world of pleasure kind of just all left for a moment and Siddhartha saw the reality that there is illness. And Chana was saying, yes, everyone will get ill sooner or later. This was another piercing into his heart, Siddhartha. He came back from that outing and you know, he, was, he began to think about this now, some aging and illness and is beginning to shake within him. <clears throat> After a while, though, things came back to a normal range, you could say, for a bit, until again there was another 
inkling to um, go back out another time into the kingdom. This time when he went out, they came across um, a dead body. And Siddhartha noticed this right away, saw the different color of the skin. The body wasn't breathing. Even Siddhartha put his hand on the person and felt the coldness. And for any of you that have ever touched a person that's died after 24 hours or so, their body is cold. I can still feel the coldness of my, on my hands of my father. <laughs> it's a type of cold that doesn't get warm, doesn't warm up. But I also put it in my heart to remind me of this fragility and this preciousness of this life. And what am I doing in my life? And China said to Siddhartha that, yes, um, everyone will die. There's no escape from death. And so this really um, was so penetrating into Siddhartha, really sobering this reality of aging, illness, and death. And going back to the palace, he was not very interested now in all these pleasurable things. And was just really forlorn, like, what, what, do, I, what do we do? What, what is life about? So you could see his heart was deeply shaken and didn't know what to do. He went out one more time and there he came across a, like an, a wandering ascetic. And when Siddhartha saw this wandering ascetic, this person was unlike any other person that Siddhartha had ever seen. This person had a walk that was very serene, very steady. The face had a lot of calmness, composure. It seemed like this person wasn't too involved with this or that, just walking very peacefully. And there's a certain attentiveness, a certain sense of mindfulness in the gait of the walking. And so Siddhartha asked Chana, who is this? And Chana said, this is a, a wandering ascetic, a holy person. That's, they, they, these are the type of people that they dedicate their lives to understanding the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha heard that, there was a glimmer of, oh, you mean this, there might be a way? That maybe there's a way to peace. This very much uh, had a, a possibility in his heart that there might be some way. And, and, and I think being so deeply pierced by 
the truth of aging, the truth of illness, the truth of death. He felt that the only thing that really mattered to him at this point was to renounce becoming a king and to become a wandering ascetic like that person and try to find the meaning of life. In Pali, there's a very powerful word. It's one word. It's called samwega. And it describes a type of consciousness, if you will. And what it means is that when you realize that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? So you could say that Siddhartha Gautama had this some wake of consciousness on steroids. He was on fire, like, what is this life? And there may be a way to figure it out. And what else is there but to go follow my heart? And so he made plans to, to leave the palace. His father found out about this and begged his son, please don't go, I'll give you anything. And being very wealthy, he thought he could just give his son anything. and said, what do you want? So Siddhartha said, prevent me from getting sick, from aging, from dying. And the king could not do that realized the futility of trying to convince his son and was so upset. But Siddhartha really felt that he'd lived such a life of so much pleasure and sport and education and that wealth. But knowing that it's all going to end with aging, illness, and death, perhaps there's something more. This turning inwards. Again, speaking of uh, awakening, this is from Carl Jung. He says, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who look outside dreams? Who look inside awakens? So beautiful. Your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? So Siddhartha had that sense of wanting to look inside, to awaken, to understand what is this life. And the story goes that he practiced very strenuously for six years or more. And at the time, there was a lot of meditation teachers and teachings, and he was a very excellent student and was studied with one teacher, then with another, and he would, in fairly quick time, master everything that the teacher taught, so much so that often many teachers would say, all right, you can come sit with me and we'll teach together now. And what was very prevalent in those times of meditation practice was the practices of absorption, Pali jhanas, deep concentration so you become at one with an object. And no doubt when you perfect these practices and you become so at one with an object, the mind gets very still. There's an effect of a lot of calmness, tranquility, pleasure, serenity, unification. And so Siddhartha Gautama was a, a master as well in developing these different material jhanas, sometimes it's known as immaterial jhanas, eight of them all together. But nevertheless, 
even experiencing these profound levels of absorption, he felt he still didn't understand deeply about life. He could calm his mind and body down to a profound degree, but the understanding about suffering uh, was elusive for him. And so he kept in his sojourn, in his journey, and, and he had heard about perhaps it's with the punishing of the body that one can attain enlightenment. And so he joined a group of five ascetics that were into self-mortification. And so he stayed with them for a period of time, practicing extreme self-mortifications. And it is said that one particular practice that he practiced a lot in was the decreasing of food intake so much so that gradually he reduced it down to one grain of rice a day. And that was his sustenance, one grain of rice. But as time went by, his body became skeletal. His, it was getting weaker. And he had a sense that if he did this much longer, he would surely die. And after a period of time he realized the futility of this punishing of the body and decided to uh, leave this group of ascetics and to restore his nourishment. And of course, these ascetics, I don't know, gosh, this Sid Arthur's going off the, off the path, going to start eating again. <laughs> but he realized that he was near death and he came across a, a very wonderful person named Sujata who offered some gruel, some healthy, good foods to help restore his health. So the story goes that uh, Siddhartha Gautama restored his health and then he saw this very big, beautiful tree and he decided to take his seat underneath this tree. And he was reflecting on that he had been to so many different teachers, practiced so many different teachings, and that he was, he was, ta- he was deciding to take a resolve that he was just going to stay here, underneath this tree. And it's like this deep commitment, like even if the skin falls off my bones and the muscles and the flesh, I will stay here or die trying to awaken. What is this life? So he took his seat underneath this beautiful tree. And the story goes, I mean, we don't quite know what happened, but the story goes something did happen. And I I love this part of the story. Is that sitting underneath this tree, and it was overlooking some beautiful land and so forth and um, and he was just feeling into the beauty of the day and then that then a, an old memory surfaced inside him of sitting underneath another tree when he was young a boy and just also remembering the the beauty of the day the oneness of the day the preciousness of this life. So he's recalling that memory as well as currently enjoying this beautiful day. 
we get a lot of these type of days here in Santa Cruz. And, um, and then another memory arose with him, in him about that day so long ago when he was a boy, when he was looking out and feeling this oneness of life. But then he also recalled another memory that happened that you remember looking over on another field and there was some farmers and oxen and plow and they were getting ready to turn over the soil to, you know, for planting season. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened, as the plow blade began to go into the earth, he almost could hear the sounds of the worms crying out in pain. And it was kind of this juxtaposition. On one side, this preciousness of life, and the other side, the fragility of life. And so recalling these two experiences as he was sitting underneath the tree, and being that the, the practice that he regularly worked with was absorption, he decided to change his meditation object. This was um, something not done, generally speaking, in the meditative practices of the day. So he developed his concentration, but rather than going into absorption, unification, one-pointedness, concentrated mind as he did indeed have it, he shifted his focus to begin to penetrate into this changing nature of things, the origination and the dissolution, the comings, the goings. So this was a very deep shift from absorption to beginning now to pay attention to the beginnings and endings of things. This is the hallmark of vipassana or insight meditation. This, this again, this penetration into change is found in the refrain and all of the foundations of mindfulness. And perhaps because of this shifting of the orientation, it gave rise within him profound realizations and understandings of life. The first realization was the realization that there is indeed suffering, or actually a friend of mine, she likes to translate it as like that life has a certain heart breaking quality to it. doesn't mean that we have the wonderful of things as well, but there was this kind of like this sobering, deep understanding of the truth of heartbreaking, of suffering, of dissatisfactoriness, of dis-ease. I mean, we have a lot of different words to describe this. That there's an element in life that has this quality of heartbreak particularly around, of course, losing those we love and being in difficult situations. I mean, we can name off thousands of different, the 10,000 joys or 10,000 sorrows. But there's this sobering penetration and understanding of the reality, the truth of suffering. In Pali, it's called dukkha. As he stayed with this humbling and sobering realization of suffering, it gradually gave rise to other 
deep realizations about life, particularly beginning with the causes of suffering, which he began to see that the most profound and deepest cause of all suffering, which is the opposite of awakefulness, is not seen clearly, is ignorance, delusion, unawareness. And that given with this unawareness, this ignorance, these misconceptions into the ideas of where do we find happiness, which is looking outside of ourselves, he began to realize that it actually happens inside oneself. And that so many times, this understanding of how much he had in the past got caught with trying to find his happiness through sensual delights or to be someone special or try to turn away and feel nothing. And beginning to just see through these causes of craving born out of ignorance, born out of misconception of things. So powerful realizations began to arise within him sitting underneath this tree, the tree of awakening, the Bodhi tree. Two further awakenings happened of that if there's a cause, there can be a way to lessen and eradicate the suffering by eradicating ignorance that automatically begins to eradicate this misconception and grasping. The last realization has to do with how we live our lives. It's called the Eightfold Path or the path of living virtuously with integrity that supports concentration or the steadying of the mind that gives rise to wisdom. Well, in no doubt, unpack these teachings more as the retreat unfolds. These four encounters that Siddhartha met in his 29th year are known as the heavenly messengers. Aging, illness, death, and then the sign that maybe there's another way, the wandering holy ascetic. And it's interesting that they're called heavenly because I don't know what's so heavenly about aging, illness, and death. But maybe it's referred to because they, they heavenly because they awake, they wake us up. And used in a wise way, we can potentially find our way to greater peace. And I really mean this very seriously that I know every single one of you has indeed met these four heavenly messengers because I don't think you could not be here in this room if you hadn't met them in your own way. Coming to this retreat, I mean, there's many different things you could have done this week than coming and sitting on your butt and feeling pain all day <laughs> and, and wandering mind. But I think, you know, what came is we, I think we all know of the heartbreaking or the stressful or the, the suffering, the challenging parts of life. And of course, um, you, you know about aging within yourself and with those who you know and trust you know about illness. I trust you know about death. I trust you know that, um, that somehow you heard about 
the teachings of the Buddha or mindfulness or something like, huh, maybe there's a way to understand more. I know that um, each of us here could be sitting here as well telling our own story of what brought us on the path to practice, our own encounters. I know even just going around the room yesterday, there was a number of you speaking about grief, recent deaths. Lots is going on. And how incredibly noble and wonderful that you've come here and wanting to sit with yourself. Intimacy, into me, I see, I want to know more. To begin to meet our aging, our illness, our death with a wise heart. Perhaps discovering ways to make peace. The Buddha spoke about that the most direct way to this realization of these four great realizations are often what's called the Four Noble Truths of suffering, its causes, namely ignorance and craving. The third is that there is a way to its lessening and ending, and the fourth through the Eightfold Path, the Noble Path. And that the most direct way in fostering this realization and practice is through the four foundations of mindfulness, which we'll be progressively going through during this week. We've begun with the body. We'll be moving eventually into the feeling tones, into the mind states. And many of the teachings that we're offering in the evening Dharma talks, as well as uh, perhaps during the instructions, are coming from the Dharmas, these teachings, these collection of teachings within the Dharmas, the Four Noble Truths is inside there, as well as how to work with the challenges that come up in practice with the hindrances, supporting allies of factors of awakening, what constitute a human being of these aggregates and sense bases. So these collections of teachings is what informs us within this foundations of mindfulness. And the Buddha said, there's actually good news that if you practice this for seven years, you could get enlightened. And then he says, well, seven years, you could try six years, you could get enlightened. Then you could do five years, you could do four, three, two, one years. Then he said, well, if, if one year you practice me, you can maybe do it in 11 months, and 10 months, nine months, and eight months, one month, three weeks, two weeks, one week. It's right in the teaching of the fourth, the four foundations of mindfulness. Within one week, you can experience the taste of freedom. So um, don't get your goal set so high, but never underestimate your aspirations. My teacher, Tampulo Seto, told us a story once of three guys, and they were, this was like about 10 eons ago. Like an eon, to give you a sense of time, is a, one bird every hundred years flies over the highest mountain of the world and brushes its wing on the top of the peak. And an eon is when that is grounded down into a flat plane. So you can get a sense of the spans of time. So this was a few eons ago. 
um, uh, there was these three guys and they were talking about their aspirations and one of them said, I want to become a Buddha. And the other two said, a Buddha, that's going to take like so many eons. Like, what do you, come on, man. <clears throat> and so this guy said, I, I want to become a Buddha. And so, um, turns out, a few eons later, he became a Buddha. And then he looked back at his past lives and recalled that conversation when he first named it out loud to another's. And then he began to wonder, I wonder where my two friends are. And one was a monkey swinging in the trees and one was a cow out in the pasture. Not, there's nothing wrong with cows and pasture and monkeys, but it was just interesting to see, you know, with, after three eons. Um, all right, never underestimate your, your intentions. Your intentions are powerful. But be wise about your, your aspirations that it doesn't become grasping and then getting caught in the subtle aggression of self-improvement that will wrap your life in a complete knot. How about, again, this practice with love, coming back to that attitude of love? Love and letting be. And again, there's this old story of Ananda, who was the Buddha's... Um, attendant, and he also had uh, an incredible memory ability. And he memorized every teaching that the Buddha taught. That's why when you read uh, the canonical literature, the very first line is Ananda. It says, thus have I heard. That's Ananda. And then he goes on to, to um, say what, you know, what, what the teaching of the Buddha was on that particular occasion. And there's even monks today that have memorized this feat of the whole Tipitaka, the three baskets of the ethics, the psychology, and the sutras. A friend of mine met one of them a few years ago and said yeah, that this monk has to recite eight hours a day for a month and a half, and that completes the whole three baskets. He's kind of like an Olympic athlete of the mind, but that it is possible. But anyway, so Ananda had this ability to have memorized everything that the Buddha taught. And after the Buddha's death, he was to meet with 499 fully enlightened beings. And he wasn't yet enlightened. And he was going to be meeting the next day. And so he figured on this day before the meeting, he had to get enlightened himself. And so he was sitting and walking and sitting and walking and so forth. And uh, Days going by and uh, uh, it ain't happening. And then he's going into the night and um, it's still not happening. And so he's getting very frustrated. He's feeling kind of embarrassed. He's going to be the only one in this room that's not enlightened with these 499 full enlightened beings. And, and he, you know, and he said, well, you know what to do. And he said, uh, and he just realized he needed to let go. And there's this funny instance in the suttas where he was getting on his bed and he was lying down towards his pillow. And when his head hit the pillow, he awakened. So it's a very wonderful thing. Like maybe like it's that thing of letting go. Letting go. All we can do is we can try to show up with our sincere hearts. To be honest. Practicing our kindness. And slowly, slowly we'll see that things begin to, in time, get smoother, rounder. In time we grow. It's a work of a lifetime. So I want to inspire you with this, and uh, we'll be having a walking meditation in just a few minutes. And what I'd love to suggest is that um, during this period of walking practice, that um, maybe 
taking a walk and maybe less doing the lifting, moving, placing, though if that arises for you, that's fine. But maybe reflecting on these heavenly, who's being your heavenly messengers? Things that touched you. Recently, our younger son, Bodhi, we had a phone call with him, and he lives in Missoula, Montana, and he's doing some work, part-time working in a convalescent facility, and particularly with people with severe memory loss, with Alzheimer's, other cognitive uh, dysfunctions. And, you know, death is pretty common in, in this place. And he was saying that just this past week, two of the residents passed on and he had the opportunity um, to go into one of the rooms with the person that he was, you know, connected with. He used to feed her and she was on her deathbed. He wasn't there when she died, but um, he, there's a part of him that wanted to go and like, he, and, and, and the, one of the nurses that has befriended him said, come, well, I'll support you to, and and I I just it was just so touching when he was sharing with Jan and I like like I never saw any like he was seeing a person that was actively dying it's like huge and like this is a heavenly messenger for him this is he'll never forget this as long as he lives yeah. so I want to invite you to like what's touched you that brings you here. Realities of our aging or others or illness, and I know there's been some recent deaths. I've had a recent death of a, of a person I cared for that uh, suicided. And so, and, and then also, like, I want to re- remind you of the fourth heavenly messenger. Could be a person that you know, it could maybe be a book that you read or something you saw or someone that you knew of, like maybe like Mother Teresa and how she lived her life. Like, I, I want to know more about myself. Or maybe it was the teachings of the Buddha. Or you know, I had an old philosophy for Professor Bill Jackson. He was like my first heavenly messenger, showing me that maybe there's another way. So maybe some time just to reflect in your own life, your own messengers that have helped you to get on the path that have brought you here. So let's just sit for a minute. So from Patrick Overton, I'll end with, when I come to the edge of all the light that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. That I will find some firm ground to stand upon or I will be taught to fly.
when I come to the edge of all that I know and I step off into the abyss of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen, that I will find some firm ground to stand upon, or I will be taught to fly. So thank you very much for your kind attention and um, go to the walking practice now, reflecting on the messengers. And we'll come back in about a half hour for our last sit. Thank you. <laughs>